for joining me, Pete Holterman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work behind the scenes at sporting events. This episode features a conversation with Vince Cicero, the Senior Vice President, Partnerships and Broadcasting at FC Cincinnati. Vince has worked with college, amateur, and professional organizations during his career and in a variety of sports. He views that cumulative experience as an asset. Right now I operate in soccer, but it doesn't mean that I'm leaning on something that I did in the, the soccer space. It may have been something I did in NFL or NBA space. It might have been something I did at Ironman. It might have been something I did in the tennis space um, that are like circumstances that, that I can draw some experience. Working in partnerships, relationship building is one of his key job functions. I think it, it speaks to the value of the decision they're having to make if they're going to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars in a sports property that they need to believe in the individuals and they need to believe in that organization that they're going to live up to everything and more with the investment that they're, they're putting in the property. Throughout his career, Vince has worked in markets with a number of sports properties, something that he considers to be a good thing. I never viewed that as the, the, the number one focus, you know, the competition with another sports team. I viewed, let's get more money spent in sports. While you listen to this episode, visit credentialsonly.com for show notes that include links with more information on many of the things that we will discuss. Without further ado, Please enjoy this conversation with Vince Cicero on Credentials On. Vince, thanks for joining us. A big piece of the competition side of sports is scouting your opponent. What's your process for scouting prospective partners? Well, Pete, it's a, it's a great question, something we actually spend a lot of time on the, the corporate side, because when we're trying to get the investment and the alignment that we're looking for, it's important that we're a great fit for the company and to understand them as, as best as possible. The good thing in today's age is information is readily available. So some of that is online reconnaissance and trying to gather information, what's out there and for public companies, that's a little bit more plentiful, but it's also for the individuals and in seeing what they're doing um, and whether that's utilizing uh, LinkedIn, social media, or otherwise trying to figure out what's important to the company, what are they doing, and to uh, understand the individuals that we're, we're calling on and trying to do business with. That can become a mountain of information and you kind of have to keep it. There's certain categories. There's the people who you're probably dealing with day to day, but then there's their boss who you occasionally have to deal with. How do you organize all that data that you're taking in? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Certainly the sales uh, uh, software uh, is important as, as we're trying to gather up some of the basics, but I think it certainly goes a little bit more in depth with that. And we'll just create our own scouting reports on businesses, try to understand uh, what they're doing. And we've got multiple people in the organization, whether it's those that are wearing the true sales hat, uh, those that are doing the activation, or those that are doing the business intelligence that all contribute to the effort. So it's never just one person. It's never just one uh, approach. 
uh, and it's trying to gather up and really focus on the most important pieces of information. It probably varies from partner to partner and the size of the, the deal that you're doing. But in general, from conceptual to signing a deal, how long is this process? Uh, it's a great question. There's no magic answer to that. Uh, deals can come together as soon as three or four months, uh, or some can take three or four years. Um, there's been many times when I've uh, had discussions, tried to find alignment, and I'll have season after season or year after year, the exploration before we find something that fits. Uh, and other times, if we're the right match for their needs and there's good alignment, it can come together in a few months. But it's never in the area of partnerships and sponsorships with the investment level that that entails and the importance it is on the company side for where they're investing their resources. It's never a quick process. So I think we understand that when we go into it, we're not going into discussions with the idea of we want to find a resolution to them in a matter of weeks. We want to try to find and see if we're a good fit. And that is months turning into years and, you know, we'll layer a year upon year before you maybe find the right fit. It sounds like it has to get pretty personal through this process. It's, it, is it like a courtship? Is that a fair analogy? Yeah, I would say there's, um, you know, there's gotta be a trust level that's there. And, and certainly people like to do business with those that they believe are looking after their best interests. And it's hard to have a quick discussion uh, limited interaction and get to the point where companies will feel like I, I trust that property and that individual if there's no history there. So um, I don't know if I'd use that term in terms of the, the relationship, but I think it, it speaks to the value of the decision they're having to make if they're going to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars in a sports property that they need to believe in the individuals and they need to believe in that organization that um, they're going to live up to everything and more uh, with the investment that they're, they're putting in the property. So we take that very seriously. We know they, it's an important decision for anyone we're doing business with. Um, and sometimes that's a fit and sometimes it's not, uh, but it, it is a, a long process and you need to build up the trust if you didn't have it beforehand as that relationship evolves, it gets probably easier to have every subsequent conversation. As an outsider for me, I'd be intimidated by the idea of that first outreach, in particular a straight up cold call. That to me is just as scary as anything. Yeah. When you do have to make that initial outreach, what do you do to kind of get yourself ready to do that so it's not intimidating? Well, I think the most important thing is to do some homework ahead of time because you really have to believe in why should that company be doing business with you and, and why are we of value to them? So we will certainly take a look at what we might understand and until you speak to someone, you don't really have the, the full information, but what we understand to be important to them and what are the potential alignments that we can deliver to them, whether it's the demographic of the audience, it's the engagement with the audience, um, it's the opportunities we can provide. And that's important twofold. One, so you've got some information uh, that you can speak intelligently to them about, but also it helps in your own belief of 
we are a good match for this company. So there isn't too much quote unquote cold outreach without at least doing a little bit of homework to figure out, are we a good fit? Could we be a good fit? What are they doing right now? And what do we have to offer? So there's some conviction in there when you're having the first conversation. I think that probably makes it a little bit easier than if it was a true cold outreach and you really didn't know what you were going to talk to them about. We usually start with some idea and we'll just recognize this may not be fully baked, uh, but here's, here's why we're reaching out to you. You mentioned that there's a group doing this and it varies organization to organization, but for you, what's kind of been the sweet spot in terms of the size of team that you're going through this process with internally within your organization to be looking at all the different angles of the deal? What are our needs? What are the possible sponsors? How can we align all that as you go through it? How many people are typically in that collaboration? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And, and certainly over time, I've worked for a variety of different sports properties and it's varied by the size of the organization. But I think if you're looking at what's ideal, I would say it's uh, three or four people. Um, just like any, any other discussion and collaboration, uh, you get much larger than that and it's really hard to have a focused conversation. But yet at the same point, nobody sitting in the room has the answers and nobody has the right perspective. So you have three or four working through the discussion and then it evolves and you figure out whether it's, it's the approach, what you want to present, where are alignments, whatever it may be that you come to a consensus. So if you've got a good working group, uh, that's probably a pretty good number to come from some different angles. And for us, again, that's usually someone who is more sales oriented. That's our chief uh, focus, revenue generation. Uh, it's someone who's involved in the activation and fulfillment so that they would know um, what's going to be important to partners and how we might go about doing it within our internal structure. And then certainly the business in intelligence, which is, you know, one of the more uh, growing areas, I think, within our industry, one of the more critical areas so that we can bring uh, data to the equation to understand what, what it is that we can deliver for a partner. And then you sign the deal, put your feet up, watch the game, right? Yeah, I'm not sure if anyone really believes that, but <laughs> that's really where the, uh, that's where the work really begins then at, at that point, because at that point you are living up to uh, what you promised and, and working really hard to, to over-deliver. And, and the thing in partnerships is if you, you create that wrong alignment, uh, or you don't deliver for the partner, it's only as long as that initial term. Uh, and we, 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 and I think most people in the industry go into it with the idea, we want this partner for a long, long time. Um, so you really need to be developing a good relationship and adjusting and, and figuring out what works for them uh, so that you get to the end of that initial term, whatever you put together, they're wanting to be a part of your organization moving forward and evolving with you. Uh, so certainly having the, the long-term partners uh, is critical. And as, as we sit here right now, a franchise that's so young as we are um, since our existence um, does not date back decades, um, you know, we are building a lot of those initial long-term partners uh, as we're here in the second year of MLS and building a new stadium that will open next year. Our hope is, you know, five years down the road, we're looking back at all the great relationships we got started initially and then working on the second wave or third wave with them. 
and FC Cincinnati is in a very interesting spot because it, it accelerated very quickly and got into MLS. And now you're, as you mentioned, building this new stadium for you personally, this is a, a third different entity within the same market. So that yeah. probably gives you some advantages. I don't imagine you've burned many bridges in town, but <laughs> it does help to have known the landscape. And in particular, you mentioned building the stadium. You were involved with the Bengals when they were building their stadium as well. How much does that experience within this particular market help you day in, day out, just kind of building and building that knowledge base? Yeah, I think it's extremely beneficial. I mean, when we look across our organization and we, we ramped up pretty pretty big and pretty fast to go from uh, when I arrived, we were finishing our last year of USL and becoming an MLS franchise. And we doubled in size during that window, brought in people, some with soccer background, some without soccer background, and some from in market and out. So certainly my background of being here in Cincinnati and working for an NFL franchise and working for a international tennis tournament and, and having the relationship in the marketplace, I think brings a lot of value going through the construction certainly is extremely valuable uh, because of not only the process, but being able to look at what's going to be important to partners, what's going to be important to the fan experience and having gone through both the things that go well and the things that don't go well. So you can avoid some, some pitfalls. So yeah, extremely fortunate, I think, and, and not many maybe being able to do that uh, three different locations in, in one marketplace. Uh, certainly special for me. You mentioned adjusting, and there are a number of things that, that, that brings to mind for me. And number one is, how do you review? What is that review process? Is it after every game? Is it quarterly? How do you review the relationships and, and make sure not only that you're meeting the metrics, but as you said, over-delivering too? Yeah, well, there's there's multiple layers to that. Uh, I mean, certainly uh, long ago, if you had a time when you did a recap at the end of a year and that was your, your touch point with the client, um, th th those days are long, long gone. Uh, for us, it's it's multiple because with many, we have weekly touch points with the, the client, with our activation person and their point person for activation to get immediate feedback uh, we also are sending regular updates uh, through on the deliverables for the things you can uh, provide information, whether it's uh, signage exposure, ratings, attendance numbers, you know, some of the metrics that may or may not be important as a part of the relationship and having the ongoing dialogue throughout the year. So really, when you sit down at the end of the year and maybe have the quote unquote recap, there should really be no surprises at all. We've already gotten feedback from them all year long and we can recognize the things we need to adjust, the things that went really well that we can maybe enhance on. So it really becomes a 12 month process. And for us, it's probably a little bit easier because we're you know, roughly a nine to 10 month sport. So we also have the event touch point throughout the year uh, that would normally exist. Uh, that might be a little bit different than if you had a more narrow time window that your event or season was occurring within. That's exactly what I was going to ask you next, because you do have that longer season in MLS. You've got eight home games in NFL. Now that's yeah. spread out over a few months, though. You mentioned yeah. tennis. You've got 10 days, and they're 10 days in a row. So it's yeah. harder to pivot and, and change things. And you probably have to then treat those partnerships for those different structured events completely differently. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right, because you don't have – 
the point of adjustment that you can make in, in ours where you're, you know, roughly running March to October in a, in a typical season, uh, you've got points when you can adjust, uh, make some transition, enhance things that are going well, um, correct some things that, that aren't going well. Uh, for certainly uh, shorter term event-based um, opportunities, you, you just don't have that window of time. So we've got to make sure we take advantage of it, but it is one of the advantages of a longer season, a broader season to be able to take care of the partner within that window. You mentioned March to October, but I can't imagine there's really an off season then from October to the following March. You, it's got to be pretty consistent, the workload to be recruiting and retaining the, the sponsors you have. Yeah. Yeah. I think really it, probably in any, any sport, any property, it, it should be a 12 month effort all the time. Um, and that's certainly the case for us. You get back to what we were discussing earlier on the lead time where it could be three months or three years. We're certainly having discussions right now a lot about our new stadium that's going to open in 2021, but we're having discussions that we realize may not bear fruit till our second year in the building or our third year in the building. Um, so if you're not investing the time to be exploring that on a year round basis, um, then you're really putting yourselves in a difficult situation. We've tried to do that just from a staffing perspective. We have people that are focused on that, that if we have a, home match coming up on Saturday uh, doesn't impact their workload or their focus. Their focus is trying to find the, the companies that we can align with and whether we're home away or not playing doesn't really matter. Uh, if we had people that were having to wear multiple hats in that role that then got distracted in those windows of time, then that makes it much more difficult. So hopefully by our, our staffing structure, we're, we're set up to do that. So you can isolate the people so the game day doesn't necessarily impact their focus on what they're doing. However, do the game day results impact the challenge that lays in front of you? Do wins and losses ebb and flow the process? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the answer is going to be different by, by market, by team, by property. I've certainly seen it in, in different situations. I think where we are right now, I mean, we are a, a club that rapidly grew um, and went from starting as a USL and we're going to be MLS, but I don't know that everyone believed it was going to happen as quick and as fast as it did, but it was all because of the fan support and the enthusiasm around the, the franchise. So even last year, our first year of MLS is an expansion franchise where we struggled on the field in terms of results. Uh, we were third in the league in attendance. We had great support. We, our partners were really pleased with uh, the excitement around the franchise. And that was all despite wins, losses, ties um, on the field. So I, I think that you're going to get a different answer probably by team, by property, by market, that it, there wouldn't be a universal answer to it. I think we're in a, a unique situation because um, the growth of the organization was all fueled by the fans. There's a lot of excitement and our business partners see that, our fans see that, that they probably look at things a little bit different. Everybody wants to win. We're, we're competing to win. We want to win championships for Cincinnati. There's, there's nothing that changes that. Uh, but I think the dynamic and the aura around the club is a little bit different. Uh, they appreciate what we do here in the community. They appreciate um, 
giving back to the, the, the fans and the, the origin of how we grew as rapidly as we grew. So we might be a little unique uh, at this point in time. How many partners do you have with FC Cincinnati? We have about 45. So we have most are in multi-year agreements. Uh, every relationship is a little bit different because it's all customized based on what's important to them. Um, so they each have their own story. Uh, we're certainly a mixture of some national properties, some regional properties, and some local properties. I mean, most North American sports teams, uh, there's going to be a skew to the local market. Um, those that are attending the events, the games, the matches, um, and we would be no different than that. And then we're also going to get support from regional and national properties, I think, because of the the growth of MLS, uh, the great demographic that exists with the property, the international aspect and some of the future growth that's there. So we have a mixture of all those. Um, and there's no magic number on the, the number of partners, but we will probably always tend to be, you know, we're not gonna have 120 partners. We're gonna have the right number of partners and whether that's 45 or 55 or whatever the number is, certainly is gonna vary from, from year to year. You mentioned that each of those 45 relationships is customized. Yeah. How do you get yourself prepared to bring that unique solution to so many different partners? Because there's no way it could be rinse repeat across the board. Yeah, it's not. It's not at all. I mean, you certainly there. There might be some things you do in one relationship that works really well that you present in a, another relationship, but it all gets back to the initial set of discussions of finding out what's important to them. I mean, that that's really the opening for almost every discussion we have is there's certainly an educational piece about what is FC Cincinnati? What do we represent? What can we deliver? But it's trying to understand what's important to the business, where are the growth areas for their business so that we can go back and figure out what is it we have that would make sense for them? What is it we can deliver for them um, that's different than anyone else? And just because of that, that drives it towards every single deal is different. And I really can't think of two that are even close to being alike. They might have some similar assets, so to speak, that might be a part of the equation, but each one is a little bit different in all levels. The What's included in it, the term that's involved, where we put the points of emphasis, what they're did, doing in digital social as well as traditional advertising or hospitality or not, use of marks, everyone is, is a little bit different. And then how do you then, on the internal side, how do you guys come up with that list of assets? You know, what's the self-analysis process to figure out what we have in terms of venue or broadcast, hospitality, digital to offer to these various partners? That's a, that's a great question. There, there are some things that are really easy to answer. I mean, if you are a, a soccer franchise, uh, let, let's use an easy example. The signage you have around the field is going to be pretty typical from franchise to, to franchise. What you would do or not do in the digital social space, uh, what you would do that may be broadcast related, what you might do that might be experiential related, uh, is certainly decided by each franchise. And certainly for us, it's taken a look at what can we deliver on? What do we have the ability to do in each of those areas? Um, and how might we 
we take that on as we ramp up on the, the volume of our partners, especially in our situation where we're jumping in to be in last year, a, a first year MLS franchise and having a big jump up and then another big jump up coming up in 2021 when we're opening our new building. So uh, we spent a lot of time just internally taking a look at not only what is it we have and what is it we could deliver, but what is it we could deliver with additional resources if it made sense for our partners, just so we could scale up uh, if the demand and the need is there. You're certainly a sports fan. I think you get a lot of enjoyment as a leisure activity of watching sports, but having that kind of always in the back of your mind of what can we be delivering to our partners, does that give you a different lens when you're watching a game on TV or going to another venue, even if it's a completely different sport? Does it influence having eyes wide open to take note of little nuances that other properties are doing? Completely. I can, and through the years, I can't tell you how many times someone who breaks in our industry and they go through a season or an event, whatever the case might be, and all the things that we talk about in this space, and then they will make the comment, I can never go to a game, a match, again and look at it the same way and it, it's true i mean for all of us that are in this portion of the the industry or maybe the industry in general you're watching a game a match on television there's just different things you know, my eyes are going to go as much to uh, signage and activation as it will to what's actually going on on the court or the field um, or i'll walk into a venue and some of the spectator and fan experiential aspects and think about how might this apply to our venue and what we're building and the things we're doing. So um, it's, it's, it's a fun aspect, but it certainly does change the way you'd walk in versus another friend that you might walk into the venue. Who's going to look at it completely different. Uh, your eyes are just focused elsewhere. So. Do you have a method when you're out there? I mean, do you, are you taking notes? Do you, send yourself emails, take pictures? Are you doing something when you're at these other events to retain that spark of uh, an idea that hits you while you're out watching something else? Yeah, that's another great question. And it's probably, it depends on how obvious I am in my scouting efforts, uh, but probably most venues I will walk in and I'll snap some quick pictures so that things, basic things like the fixed signage that's in the venue, I can go back and look at the photo later, see who's on there. Or if I see some cool promotion, I'll either snap a quick picture of it um, or I'll send myself an email. Uh, a lot of times I might have, you know, multiple emails sitting in my box, depending on uh, what popped up and when I decided to, to prompt myself. So uh, and then if I'm in a position where I certainly can just write things down, if I'm at home and watching a game on TV, then that might be a little bit different. So it's it's always ongoing and it's not just sporting events, but it can be a variety of entertainment events that, that you can grab ideas from. We mentioned what are some of the sellable assets that you're now in MLS and they are at the forefront really of having the Jersey sponsorship. And we've seen the NBA come in a little bit with the patch, but how has that been received? How much of a game changer is that for MLS? And do you think that the other North American sports are going to be real close to embracing it the way MLS and soccer in general has globally uh, in yeah. the near future. Yeah, I think certainly if you, if you look over the last few years, there's been a lot of changes in North American sports on that front and an opening uh, for what's occurring on that front. It's a traditional part of 
soccer. Uh, so it's easy. I think it's greatly embraced, you know, from the, the fan perspective, they, they identify as much, you know, we've got mercy health on the front of our kit and they'll see mercy health. And there's an immediate association with FC Cincinnati, um, with that. And that's a, that's a common part of our sport and well accepted by our fans, which is key. I think that if there's any hesitancy in any sport for movement in that area, it might be what's the consumer reaction to it. But even the NBA, I think they saw, you know, they, as they jumped in, they weren't sure exactly what the reaction would be. I think well adopted by fans and understood by fans and, you know, became a common part of that sport. Um, So I, I see that growing for our sport. That's, been historical um, and well outside North America. So it's just a normal part of our operation, I think always would be accepted in our sport. We mentioned you've had a variety of different organizations, but this has been your career now for a number of years. In that time, what are some of the ways you've seen the categories evolve? Ones that might've surprised you, but also ones that might be on the cusp of being the breakout category. Um, there's probably a lot of different layers to that question. There are some, you know, more recently where, you know, the gaming um, category is one that's evolved a lot more than if you backed up time 10 years ago that you probably would have forecasted it to be. I think the digital aspects of um, how businesses are, are driving their own business has, has changed and created some, some different industries within it. Uh, You've had some traditional advertising categories that always wanted to own the category. They wanted exclusivity. And as you negotiated the deal, that was a critical point. And then some of those same categories decided, you know what, I'd rather invest a little bit less and compete with my competition and would drive it towards a non-exclusive type relationship. So all those variances have occurred. A lot of the what might've been the traditional uh, advertisers, Um, you know, that that might be a lesser piece or you might have some who have diversified their business. I'd use soft drink, you know, where at at one point it was the flagship brands uh, that were the real focus. And and now certainly their portfolio would have gone from six or eight to 80 or 90 different product lines that could be a part of it. So what they're looking to achieve is just a little bit different. So I think that's ever evolving. I think it's important then to, just understand what's occurring in the different industries and figuring out what, what's the trend, what, what direction is it going. And usually the partners will be pretty direct in telling you that. In what ways do you think gambling being legalized in the U S will open up new revenue opportunities? Well, I think just the leagues and the teams, you know, which a lot of times the teams go hand in hand with the league because they're the ones that maybe are setting the guidelines on, restrictions. Uh, it's creating a lot of different opportunities. I think, um, you know, it's, it's creating where, where dollars were spent, but they weren't realized in sponsorship spend space. Uh, those same dollars are being spent, but uh, sports sponsorships becomes a platform to, to reach consumers. I, th- I think that's a growth area and will be. Um, there's certainly state by state now as the legislation changes. Some have already adopted, so they're they're seeing the start of it. Some are on the cusp of, and they're going to see it. And then I think there's, there's certainly going to be a growth and then there's going to be a maturity to it. So we're probably going to be in a growth phase for whatever might be forecasted the next three to four years. And then it might, there might be some 
maturity to the category and the spend in that category as they realize what's effective and what's not effective. You touched on earlier, the, the goal is to always have the long-term partnership to keep someone around and continue to evolve and grow the relationship that you have. There's a point in every partnership though, where when it's coming to an end, you have to sometimes have a delicate balance between wanting to renew, but also needing to explore what the options are. How do you maintain that balance? It's a good question. I mean, sometimes there's going to be mechanics to it. There's going to be just contractually, you know, first rights and, and ways that that discussion occurs. And other times it's going to be the end of a term and it's an open one. I think that's where the ongoing conversation you're having with the partners to figure out, is this working for them? Um, and is this a good relationship and understanding what are the trends in the industry to know is there different level of spend that's occurring by the competition in that space versus at the point that you put the agreement and trying to balance those. I think the most important thing is the, the dialogue and the reconnaissance, you know, to have the dialogue with the partners to understand how well of a fit it is for each side. And then the reconnaissance just to know and the research to know what's going on in the industry. You know, for us, sometimes that's looking at what what's occurring with other MLS uh, franchises. Other times it might be, what else is occurring in the marketplace, whether it's the, the Reds or the Bengals, or what else might be occurring that we see across North America that, that might be some trends. As you think back over your career, how important an asset is the accumulated experiences that you have? In my view, it's been tremendously important because a lot of times when I'm leaning on some of my prior learnings, it's not that, you know, right now I operate in soccer, but it doesn't mean that I'm leaning on something that I did in the, the soccer space. It may have been something I did in NFL or NBA space. It might've been something I did at Ironman, might've been something I did in the tennis space um, that are like circumstances that, that I can draw some experience. And sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it's avoiding a problem or a pitfall. And other times it's, you know, it's an idea or an opportunity that I created. So for me, I view it as, as valuable. You know, there's always been an overarching revenue generation aspect to the things that I work on. Uh, and there's been aspects that have been event related that I work on. Um, and I, many times when we have discussions internally, especially new stadium related, I'll draw upon all those. I will say this worked or this didn't work. And sometimes I might be reciting um, something that occurred in uh, NFL time and other times it might have been something that we did at the tennis tournament and, and they all apply. You have had the opportunity to be involved with, uh, as by my count at least, four pretty significant construction projects within different organizations and I think they're all obviously going to be unique but um, would love to touch on all of them to just know what yeah. you took away from each and the first one was one of your first experiences with Marquette University when they were moving into the Bradley Center in Milwaukee, which they were going to share with the Milwaukee Bucks, who had been your past employer, um, yeah. but a new venue in downtown Milwaukee, literally across the street from where they were playing. But what do you remember from that initial construction, new building experience that you were part of? Yeah, probably of all the different things I've, I've done, the highest 
um, level of growth in, in a short period of time probably occurred in that setting, chiefly because I was handed a lot of responsibility. I didn't have a lot of experience. Um, I, I learned a lot about, um, I think, the, the leadership and maybe more, more so mentorship because I had someone who really believed in me that I could work through the problem and gave me the free pass of you're going to make mistakes because I realize you don't have a lot of experience, but we're entrusting you to work on this. So that work at Marquette was probably some of the most special I got involved in because I got exposed to a lot in a short period of time. And I certainly did make mistakes, but I had someone behind me, my boss, the athletic director, Bill Cords, who stood there and said, okay, that you're going to make those mistakes and that is okay, but you're also going to make a lot of really good decisions uh, for the university and we're entrusting you with that. So that gave me a lot of confidence at a very young age and a lot of great exposure. And there's still things, you know, even as we're going through the, the current construction right now, I can think back to those. And, and I realized within our group, our team, uh, we've got many, this is the first time they're going through it. So they don't have the prior experience or things maybe to think through uh, that might develop in that setting. Uh, but between myself and we've got a, we've got a few other people in our organization that have been through a build before we will recite back on those. So that, that was certainly a special time because of what was entrusted to me. And I, I knew, you know, again, to the mentorship side, how important uh, giving someone the confidence and the, the authority to, to make decisions and realizing mistakes will be made, but you've got to learn from them, never make them again uh, and make the good decisions outweigh them. You yeah. left Milwaukee, came to Cincinnati, and we're involved with the Bengals moving from Riverfront down to Paul Brown Stadium. And yeah. that was exciting for them because it was their own place rather than a share with the Reds. They were getting their own venue. Yeah. What from that has really stuck with you? Yeah, I, I love that opportunity. And I think the, the prior experience I had in Milwaukee had a little bit on going through that construction. So I think I was a little more informed than the, the second go around. Uh, and was fortunate to be kind of a, there was a small group of us with the team that got involved in a lot of the decisions that were made that was really, really critical. Uh, and we knew how impactful that was going to be for the community. This was our, you know, first solo home, you know, for the, the franchise and coming over and the Reds were, were right behind us in their construction and building their, their Great American Ballpark, which is fantastic. So I love that experience and, and looking at it through the lens of not only how can we drive revenue, uh, but also how can we make this a, a great venue for a long, long time for our spectators and for our team and, and setting everything up. So it was a unique opportunity and certainly felt even better equipped that second go around because I had had some prior experience uh, to at least know what to look for and maybe some things that were right around the corner. Cincinnati is a great sports town. It's a, a good sized market. There's a lot of industry, but I don't think it matters really where you are. If you've got multiple facilities being built simultaneously, it has to make the marketplace feel really small and really competitive. Is yeah. that how you found it while the Reds were putting up their stadium just down the street from the Bengals stadium? You know, honestly not. Um, I, I thought we all, we both had our, our unique niche um, in the marketplace. You know, when you, when you take a look at MLB and I, I love baseball and the, 
the volume of events, the demographic, the cadence of everything, it, it was just different than what we were selling as a as an NFL team. So many times we did have some overlap of partners, but a lot of times we had different partners within the same category and that all worked out very, very well. There's, there's no doubt there's always competition. There's never going to be an avoidance of, of competition, but uh, I never viewed that as the, the, the number one focus, you know, the competition with another sports team. I viewed let's get more money spent in sports. Let's because if people had a great experience with the Reds and they do a fantastic job, but if partners are really pleased with what they're getting through the spring and the summer, why wouldn't they continue in the fall into the, the start of the winter and align them with the NFL team? So, and, and we view it, I think, similar, you know, for ourselves uh, at FC Cincinnati, we've got a, a different demographic than the other two teams. But if companies are having success in aligning with us or one of the other two, uh, more apt that they're going to continue on the sports sponsorship spend versus the variety of other things they could be doing, whether it's general media buy or otherwise, uh, that we aren't necessarily competing against the other team as much as just the the ad spend, the investment spend on on all forms. So it's not a companies aren't deciding at the front end. It's we're only going to spend X in sports. They're going to spend where they feel it's effective, and if a greater presence in sports with an alignment with you know. In current time, uh, FC Cincinnati and the Reds, then they'll do that. About a decade after you went through that with the Bengals and Paul Brown Stadium, you become tournament director of the Western and Southern Open, which is midway through a three-year site renovation. And this was a little bit different construction project because you had come in after the new seating area in the stadium was done. And when you came in, they were in phase two and phase three. Phase two was just more space on the ground, some new courts, a new stadium, but not a ticketed stadium. And then the full year of phase three, which was really just fan amenities. How is that process similar but different from a complete new venue build like you had with Paul Brown Stadium or Bradley Center? Yeah, I loved it. And, and I think your, your distinction is, is right on because when I came in there, the focus was really on the fan experience. It wasn't on the seated venue as much, but it was, it was changing what that experience was going to be for the consumers and trying to broad, broaden the consumers. And as a longtime fan and attendee of the tournament, um, I think I had, I had some special uh, appreciation for what it had been and, and the possibility of what it could become. And it was an event that drew all the avid tennis fans already. Um, and they, they would come to see the very best players, um, regardless of the, the brick and mortar type facility that was going to be there. And all of a sudden had a great brick and mortar. Um, but then the fan experience where you talk about uh, what's occurring uh, out there on the food and beverage side and that experiential, which is really what broadened the event to the casual tennis fan, the the big event fan, those that came out and they knew Roger and Serena, but they couldn't tell you who was ranked 10th or 15th or 20th in the world. And that was really the the focus of those next phases. And I really enjoyed that because it, it was about that. And to a certain degree, I kind of aligned with that. I was I was a tennis fan, but not a avid and, and knew it so well. I was there because it was a, it was a big event. It was great for the community to be there. Um, so to work on that with the, the rest of the team 
uh, was a special opportunity and, and could really dial in on kind of those other needs aside from watching the best players on center court, but the rest of the reason why they would invest their dollars there. To now the current day where you're working on the West End Stadium project with FC Cincinnati. And I would have to think one of the biggest differences between what you did with the Bengals and Paul Brown Stadium and what you're doing with FC Cincinnati is there's more opportunity to probably make it feel real. It's no longer a two-dimensional drawing on a paper that you're showing people, but you probably have a lot more digital assets to really make people feel like they're in the venue when you're trying to pitch them on what it's going to be like. Is it accurate to say that that has changed it? And I assume that's for the better, or does that bring about more questions and, and make the job harder for some reason? No, it's, it is dramatically different. Technology is, is a great, great friend. And when I think back to some of the artists' uh, renderings uh, and flat drawings that we're using to, in essence, present, sell, and educate um, everybody on the, the venue when we open that building versus what we have right now um, with the virtual reality env environment, which we're just about to release, that will give all fans the chance to look at if I was in this seat, this is the view of what the building would be like and the technology we're about to view and the experience center that we've, we've built out downtown that will give people a chance to walk through and do some basic things, see a, a large scale model of what the building is, but it's more driven by the technology that we can walk people into rooms. We can show them what premium space is. We can show them what a suite is. We can show them what the view of the scoreboard is. This is what the signage looks like down on the field. Technology is so dramatically different, um, all for the better, all for the better. Um, as we're releasing this, people are going to be able to sit in the friendly confines of their couch and on their laptop, be able to walk around the building and look at what's there. And as we looked at this technology and looked at other venues that were being built, it was just amazing to see the virtual um, virtual view of what it was to what the finished product was and how exact it is because the virtual environment is all built off of the architectural drawings and the decisions we're making right now on furniture and light fixtures and all of those things are built into the virtual environment that it is very realistic and it is a complete representation of, yeah, this is what it would look like if you are in that seat when this building opens next spring. So it's fantastic. It's better for everyone. As we, as we view it, the more information, the more education we can give uh, to consumers and business partners, the better, because then they can decide is it, what is it they'd like to align with? Are we a good fit? In what aspect are we a good fit? Um, and the, the technology pieces that we have at our disposal right now and, and the things we're gonna use from now till next spring um, are gonna be great educational pieces for consumers and businesses alike. The experience working on these build outs, but also in the team setting is very different from what you were doing with a more touring enterprise such as Feld Entertainment or the Ironman series. Right. how do you have to pivot when you're changing gears to go and look at a property that is that touring roadshow? 
That's a good question. I, I'll honestly say that was that was certainly a challenge uh, for me and working the majority of the time through the years has been on the team side. And uh, I'm probably wired to really enjoy the wins and losses, the pain that comes with the loss, the enjoyment that comes with the win, the idea that everybody in the organization, everybody that you show up in the office with is working towards that. We might not have an impact on the field or on the court, but you're all working towards winning and creating a great experience for fans and business partners and certainly enjoy that. Um, it's a different viewpoint. And with, you know, some in an event like Ironman, you've got this great lifetime achievement event. Those that are participating in it are, are doing something um, unlike, you know, 99.5% of the population just cannot, you know, could not complete an Ironman. And there you are having this great achievement, great demographic, so great for our business partners. Um, you've got spectators, different form of spectators, more alignment with the athletes than it is that they're cheering for a team. So it's really a refocus of where is it you're putting the energy and trying to find the alignment very different. So I'm, I'm certainly wired more, I think, on the, the team side because I enjoy that that aspect of it. But um, the those event sides are, are fantastic. It's just a different approach for, for how you speak to consumers and speak to businesses. So I do have to ask then, what are the most impactful wins, the most memorable ones that you've been a part of with a franchise? Uh, with any franchise? Yeah. Um, probably going back. I mean, I've had a lot of fun runs, I think, through through all them. There was a lot to those initial years, I think, at Marquette um, and, and some of the wins that occurred there. In the, in the setting, and I think it was probably the the newness uh, that was there. I probably enjoyed some of those um, more than anything. And, and sometimes it was when the team was competing, and sometimes it was, you know, having the honor of uh, being the tournament manager for the NCAA tournament, knowing what was on the line and what a large-scale event that was. But probably those early years resonated a little bit more, uh, probably akin to most of us as sports fans. You, you might have some great memories of when you're, you know, 10, 11 years old, that will be more vivid than some things that might have been uh, five or 10 years ago. Uh, probably true in the industry, too. Those were probably a little bit more special because they were they were new. How about a painful loss that sticks out over the years? Uh, there's no doubt. I, I've got no dispute on that. That was in uh, 2005. Cincinnati Bengals um, had a fantastic team, fun team. Carson, Chad, TJ, and uh, Carson goes down with the injury, knee injury at the start of the game. And a uh, good friend and great person to, to, to work with. And that was a team uh, we all felt could go deep, could compete for the Super Bowl. And since we lost to the Steelers, the dreaded Steelers, and then they went on to win the Super Bowl. That made it all the more painful. And, and I would attend the Super Bowls back then for business development reasons and just sit there. That was, that was certainly still bothers me to this day. Uh, so in professional setting, that's probably it. I might have some Milwaukee Brewer ones that harken back to 82 uh, before I got in the industry that might be even more painful than that. But uh, certainly in professional setting, that would have been the one. We will not discuss any Game 7s on this uh, podcast. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you. 
Um, I always like to close with a six question segment called the set pieces. These are the same questions I ask everybody. Uh, the yeah. first one that I ask, what are podcasts or newsletters that you're using to stay informed and keep learning? Uh, that's good. I think it's uh, ever evolving, but uh, probably leaders is, is always good on the, on the podcast. Um, it, it certainly takes a little dedication of time. I like the longer format, you know, where you've got an hour or so where you're, you're listening to some leaders in the industry. Uh, Como Pride Time uh, is certainly, Chris does a great job and probably look to him for some deeper insights on some of the news that might be topical, that he might dive a little bit deeper than the, the quick hit. Of course, working in this industry, uh, sports business, daily and sports business journal, uh, our flagship uh, pieces of, of staying on top of, of things. And then uh, Thought of the Day, uh, which originates here in, in Cincinnati, um, Liz Keating does uh, a, a daily uh, thought of the day that uh, I really enjoy and I know a lot of people enjoy and it's something that's kind of grown is it, it takes on more of a national profile. Who are your most valuable follows? The social media posts that you don't want to miss when this person has posted something? Um, some might be individuals and some may be um, entities, but probably on the individual side, a Lester Holt. I'm a huge Lester Holt fan. So certainly we'll track what he's doing. And more recently, I think because of um, what's topical, uh, Dr. Myron Roll, who former NFL player, now neurosurgeon, uh, I find him fascinating. He's um, extremely intelligent. He, he boils it down and, and certainly in, in current time is, is given some good insights. And then just industry-wide, uh, sport techie and front office sports uh, is a great quick update on what's occurring in our industry and, and provide some details sometimes you don't find. What are a couple books that you would recommend to others? Uh, one I'd recommend, our entire organization uh, just read it. It's a quick read. It's a weekend read, uh, Energy Bus uh, by John Gordon. Uh, is a fantastic read. Um, you don't have to be in sports to appreciate the basic principles of, of what's there. And another John Gordon book, uh, You Win in the Locker Room First, is another good one. Another quick read. Um, those are good, certainly for sports, competition, you know, what we all we, we believe we are. But I think for anyone in business and anyone in life, I think there's some really good insights um, probably for fun, I've been a long time John Grisham. So going back to the firm in the early 90s and, and all the books he's had, I, I've never really counted up, but I would guess some probably three quarters of the, the books he's put out. And it's just a good, fun, I'm more of a adv action adventure type and love some of the, the angles that he has. So, What are you streaming, TV or music or both? Uh, I'm streaming both. Uh, what I'm really enjoying right now, and, and I've got a bias towards this because um, one of the, the principles of it is, is also one of our owners of our, our team, uh, but Quibi uh, with Meg Whitman, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, who's her, her partner in launching Quibi, I think is fantastic. The format that's there. Um, and I, I love the, the differentiation that is relative to some of the other 
streaming opportunities that are out there that are running 30, 62 hour. Um, so I'm loving Quibi right now. Uh, never at all followed Ozark. I had heard people talk about it. And in recent time now with a little additional time, uh, Netflix's Ozark, I've actually plowed through all three seasons. So I'm all caught up, found it extremely fascinating. Um, so that was certainly good. And uh, music wise, when I'm not on meetings, not on Zooms, um, not on the phone uh, as background, a Pandora has kind of carried the day for me for a long time. And it's uh, well-trained on my thumbs up and thumbs down. Uh, so I've been a long time Pandora guy and I just love the music and we'll pick just whether I'm, I'm going rock country or, or something else for that day. What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? Uh, probably hearkening to, um, you know, certainly for, for me, sports has been passionate in all the different places I've been, but there is, certainly something more passionate when, when you're young and the Milwaukee Brewers, uh, those were special, special times. So going to the ball games, tailgating, um, and being a part of, you know, those years when there was, you know, Robin Young, Paul Molitor and Brewers baseball at, at County stadium, uh, is a special memory that, that will always be there. So, uh, I don't know that it's one event as much as that collection, you know, would go out with friends, go out with family, uh, go to games with my dad. Those, those were certainly fun, fun memories. Lastly, do you collect your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? That's a funny question because for those in the industry, some, and, and I've seen the setting in their office, uh, I've probably been one uh, who I've only sporadically collected them. And it would be during a key year or a key event, you know, first year of, um, helping run the Western Southern Open like that that first year was a special one I kept it um, I've got my uh, first FC Cincinnati you know our, our initial year uh, here in MLS you know I collected that but I didn't collect them all through the years that would be a huge huge pile uh, so I, I sporadically I probably only have I'd say a dozen eight to 10 that I've just collected. And it, there would have been a reason I kind of threw it into my memorabilia box. And there's just a box with a few of them sprinkled in. There is, there is. Yeah. Yeah. Just to look back uh, at some point down the road and pull it out. And I will remember that year. Uh, otherwise that might be a whole separate box uh, if I had kept them all. <laughs> Vince, I really appreciate the time and the insights today. Thanks for joining me. Pete, pleasure. Thank you for having me. I had to resist the temptation to make this entire episode a celebration of the Milwaukee Brewers franchise, but between the two of us, we easily could have gone down that rabbit hole. Make sure to check out the show notes on credentialsonly.com for more information on many of the topics that we discussed during this episode, including a look at the virtual reality sales experience they are using as FC Cincinnati builds the West End Stadium. I want to thank Vince Cicero for taking the time to have this conversation, and thanks to you for listening. Credentialsonly.com is a Holter Media production and is edited by Mike Miche. Let me know what you thought by leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please give us a follow on your favorite social media channels. And when you head to Credentialsonly.com, drop us your email address so that we can slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share.